0: you are listening to inside healthcare a podcast presented by ncqa hi everybody and welcome to another episode of inside healthcare i'm your host dave smolar senior multimedia specialist here at ncqa ncqa the national committee for quality assurance exists to improve healthcare in america we want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback for us, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. In this episode, there are two interviews that each ask really basic yet complex questions about healthcare. The first question, how come most primary doctors don't screen patients for alcohol or substance overuse? Of course, they'd be concerned if they think a patient is using or abusing, but there's still a stigma about asking questions whose answers might reveal that a patient is drinking too much. The second big question for today, why is it so hard to develop a healthcare coordinator service for patients at the local level anywhere in the United States. It's something most of us could use, a helper to walk with us through our healthcare journey, advise us if we have a crisis, and make sure we get all the tests and records that we should have. Well, we'll get answers to these questions from my guests. But first, question, why are patient alcohol and substance use disorders so often overlooked in primary care. In American culture, in our kids' schools, in advertising, everywhere you look, there are resources warning against the dangers of addiction, listing the signs of substance overuse and the harms it causes, not only to the user, but to the people who live with them, the people around them. If everyone knows that drug abuse is bad, and alcohol overuse is dangerous, And if a patient exam reveals typical symptoms of substance abuse, why do some primary doctors seem to have issues talking to patients who might be having a problem with addiction? Why does mainstream medicine still treat those conditions like outliers? Well, this interview will not only answer that question, it will point patients and providers in the right direction, toward adoption of universal alcohol screening and follow-up. These next three experts will remind us that there is help to implement evidence-based alcohol healthcare, free resources from NCQA, and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, known as the NIAAA. At NCQA's second annual Health Innovation Summit in Orlando, I interviewed Dr. Tekla Rumder ross Dr. Catherine Bradley, and Dr. Laura Quaco. And, by the way, right now I'm noting here that all three interviewees invited me to call them by their first names with all due respect. Dr. Tekla Rumder ross is a clinical psychologist and national leader of addiction medicine. In her 14 years at Kaiser Permanente, Tecla led and implemented large-scale practices and policies in addiction medicine, treatment protocols, and primary care behavioral health integration. Notably, she led the addiction medicine leaders of operations and research across the Kaiser Permanente enterprise – facilitated the spread of the screening, intervention, and referral-to-treatment methodology, known as Alcohol as a Vital Sign, across eight Kaiser markets, and developed a national harm-reduction strategy. Tecla currently provides strategic consultation to the NIAAA. Dr. Laura Quaco is Chief of the Treatment, Health Services, and Recovery Branch in the Division of Treatment and Recovery at the NIAAA, Her office supports research in broad categories, including behavioral health treatments, translational research, and innovative methods and technologies across the continuum of care. Her work also focuses on underserved populations, including NIH-designated health disparity populations, individuals with co-occurring disorders, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, During her time at NIAAA, Laura has been involved in development of the healthcare professional's core resource on alcohol and the addictions neuroclinical assessment. She received her Ph.D. in clinical psychology from Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Katherine Bradley is a primary care general internist, and her research on unhealthy alcohol use and opioid use disorder has included developing trials of implementation of alcohol screening, brief interventions, and shared decision-making for alcohol use disorder across primary care clinics. She recently received NIAAA funding for the SIP trial, namely the Systematic Implementation of Patient-Centered Care for Alcohol Use Trial called Beyond Referral to Treatment. Doctors Brumder, Ross, Quaco, and Bradley collectively strive to link substance use disorders and treatment to behavioral health, which they see as just one part of a whole health approach to clinical medicine. We discuss some amazing tools now available to incorporate screenings for alcohol or drug use or both into mainstream primary care assessments. And those tools, by the way, take advantage of NCQA's HEDIS measures, but let's hear it from them.
1: It's important that we talk about patient alcohol use as an important health issue because heavy drinking is incredibly common, and we know that. We know that as healthcare leaders, we know that as patients ourselves, we know that as family members. About one in four adults have heavy drinking, drink beyond Uh, the low-risk limits. And so we want to acknowledge that and screen for it in primary care. Two, alcohol can have a far-reaching health impact. It contributes to more than 200 health conditions and is the top cause of preventable death in the United States. Alcohol screening and follow-up is top-ranked preventive health service in terms of cost-effectiveness and clinical burden. Yes, you heard that right. Cost-effectiveness and clinical burden, more than cholesterol, more than high blood pressure and colorectal screening. So yes, it's important to address. Health plans cannot effectively address hypertension and diabetes, for example, or promote whole health care without addressing alcohol consumption.
0: So it's, it's wired, it's tied into so many other aspects of healthcare, so many aspects of, of um, patient analysis that it can't and shouldn't be um, put to the wayside or treated as a separate issue,
1: correct? 100%. If we're not asking about alcohol, then we're operating with a blindfold on.
0: Laura, what would you like to add?
1: I, I would
2: underscore everything that Tecla said. You know that we know that alcohol consumption, especially heavy alcohol, alcohol consumption, is very common in the U.S. adult population, um, and and you know most people, um, including healthcare professionals, don't realize how far-reaching the health impacts of heavy alcohol consumption can be. Um, you know, it contributes to um, over 200 health conditions. So this is something that we need to do something about but moreover this is something that we can do something about. This is a problem that we can address better in primary care and other settings and we can use that to provide better patient care overall.
0: So Kathy um it's it's not that everything is being completely ignored. Obviously there's care for alcohol use disorders and and for other disorders that are that are in the same vein, but still it's not there're things that everybody here wants to say today in terms of primary care. So aren't most primary care providers already um they already have services or is the problem that they're just not integrating alcohol use disorder treatments and opioid treatments and similar treatments? They're not really bringing it into the mainstream. What what are the issues? What are the challenges right now?
3: You know, I think there's there's two issues. First of all, there's there's prevention um and what we want Providers do is to be screening with validated questions and then offering counseling to people who are drinking above recommended limits. Um, and that, that um, just that prevention piece, is one of many prevention activities that primary care providers are trying to provide. Um, and, and in fact, we know it takes over 10 hours. To provide all that are recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So so one of the barriers is just time integrating um, care into the visits. And and what we know is that it takes systems and it takes team-based care to get that care reliably happening in primary care. It's not that the primary care providers um, are, are... failing, it's that we don't have the systems. Um, and then there's care for alcohol use disorder. and and that really brings us to the the piece around stigma. and and one of the barriers to people talking comfortably around alcohol is is um, the concern that patients will feel stigmatized, that the that the provider is labeling them, or they'll feel guilty or they'll feel shame because of the stigma associated with alcohol use in our society. So there's a it's complex. Um, thing providers do sometimes talk to their patients about about alcohol, but it's not happening on a systematic basis, so that everybody's getting the preventive care they need, and then patients with alcohol use disorders are not getting the treatment they need. So it, it, it's at both ends of the spectrum.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on um, Kathy's answer. I, it, she's absolutely right, you know, and and wanted to emphasize that um, we are seeing relatively high rates of screening for alcohol consumption. Um, we're not seeing high rates of screening with validated tools. So that's one problem. Another problem is that even though we're seeing high rates of screening, we're seeing lower rates of brief intervention for people who would need it. And then we're seeing even lower rates for referral to treatment, again, for people who need it. So, you know, and I think that really – you know, kind of underscores Kathy's point that we have this prevention aspect of care provided in primary care settings. And then we also have care delivered to people with alcohol use disorder who really need potentially a more specialized form of care. And, and we're just not seeing the level of quality um, or the the widespread um, prevalence of this care that we would like to.
0: So I, I want to ask Tekla, uh, not to say this is the most complicated, but the why question. So Why do you think uh, substance abuse has been overlooked or, again, not to throw everybody in, in, you know, in at once, but to say, why has it been maybe not considered part of overall patient treatment as a whole for for the most part?
1: Yeah. So substance use disorder has been overlooked um, because of the many things that you just heard Laura and Kathy talk about, which is time, Right. And people thinking it's going to take a lot of time and get in the way. And when there's only 13 minutes or 15 minutes or 11 minutes to see 21 patients in one day, how will I have time to also ask about alcohol in addition to all the other screening questions and presenting problems? So one is time. One is stigma, which Kathy really mentioned. The stigma, and not just for patients to talk about alcohol use, but for our providers, for our clinicians who weren't trained and weren't given the tools how to ask the questions in an evidence-based way and given empowered to ask them confidently and link it to care, lack of training. So that's links back to what I just said in terms of stigma and then lack of practice level and system level support. So if it's not integrated into the EHR, if it's not integrated into the team-based care best practices, if the MA isn't screening and then the primary care provider isn't following up or the integrated behavioral health clinician isn't following up, on the screening. Then, as Laura said, the brief intervention gets dropped, right? So we see these high rates of screenings, but then we see lower rates of brief intervention. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health Research at Kaiser, who I owe much of my gratitude for sitting in this seat today, is really looking at what are the barriers to certain populations getting the brief interventions that they know and deserve. I don't want to point the finger at any part of the system. We all take responsibility for it, but it is doable. We've done it at Kaiser. Kathy's done it at the VA. Kathy's done it at Kaiser. We've seen other systems do it and we can do it. It's about empowering our clinicians and empowering our systems and patients to know how to do it. And thanks to the core resource on alcohol from NIAAA, we can do it.
0: Uh, you know, and, and just a quick follow-up for, for Tecla, it, it makes me think about when we're talking about personalized healthcare and training, even either training the next generation of medical professionals or training, retraining clinicians nowadays on how to talk to patients, um, how to how to do patient-oriented outcomes and patient-oriented care. And even the 30-second rule of ask a nice open question to somebody when they walk in your office. And then for 30 seconds, you're not allowed to say anything. And, and to train them and learn how to observe and what to look for. If, if you were doing something like that, just off the top of your head, what do you think a clinician might ask or might look for in a patient to start thinking, maybe there's a substance use issue that either is the patient's issue or that they're living with somebody who is who's suffering?
1: Mm, good question. So I'm thinking about a patient in the system, in the Kaiser system, whereby the MA, the medical assistant would have screened the patient and I, the physician would get a piece of paper or it would be in the electronic health record, multiple different ways that's, that shows me that that patient may be screened positive. So what do I mean by screen positive? Had um, one or more heavy drinking days or um, amount of time that they drank per week based on the type of screener, either the audit C or the NIAAA single item screener. I, the physician walk in the room and I know that the presenting problem is hypertension, right? That's why they came in today. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, now I know that they're drinking beyond the low risk limits, maybe some heavy episodic drinking. And so I state my concern as a physician, you know, Dave, I'm concerned that you're drinking beyond the low risk limits. And I recommend that you cut back in relation to your hypertension care, right? What do you think about that? pause, there's that 30 seconds, right? So then enters in maybe the cultural aspects, maybe the stress of life, the whole other person that we're sitting in front of, right, who may want to talk about it and may not. Asking the question is an intervention in itself. And we want to be sure that we allow patients the space to not respond and ask them again next time.
0: What are the challenges that you foresee that have traditionally impelled clinicians to consider substance use issues as a separate category and not really integrate, traditionally not integrate with their care plans?
2: Yeah, that's a really important question for us to consider. So historically, uh, unhealthy alcohol use um, was viewed as a moral failing or a behavioral problem. It was viewed as something that is entirely within a person's control and they can stop at any time. And if they don't, they are choosing not to. Um, Many people still believe that, unfortunately. Um, And so as a result, stigma is pervasive. Um, Shame and guilt can really um, get in the way of patients talking about their alcohol use and related concerns. It gets in the way of healthcare professionals asking them, you know they may be very uncomfortable to bring up the topic, um, and it's it's uh, you know tough because alcohol use disorder is a treatable medical condition, and there are things there are concrete steps that healthcare plans and healthcare professionals can take in order to treat it. Um, and you know one of the things that we also know about providing care for patients with alcohol use disorder is that it takes a really strong team and a strong system of care. So ideally, we're see we're seeing screening in the electronic health record. We're seeing follow-up prompts in the electronic health record, depending on a person's responses. And so when these supports are in place, the whole system is better able to care for this person with an alcohol use disorder. Um, but we know that often those support systems are not there. Um, you know, and, and so that's one thing that we're really focused on is how can we um improve systems to better support their healthcare professionals and ultimately better support their patients.
0: Kathy, can I move the question on to you? Um, if anything you want to talk to us about in terms of examples of stigma, of social stigma, um, whether it's a, a family with a, a moral core and someone's embarrassed, uh, or it's be, uh, another element of behavioral health where there's just too much stigma on in society nowadays for anybody with any kind of behavioral health issue who that keeps them from seeking treatment, even when they clearly feel like they do. That's one side. The other question for you is, what would be the benefit? And then, well, it's just a little bit. And then the next question is, what what do you think the benefits would be of turning the train around, turning all of this around? And at least starting by having medical professionals start to integrate behavioral health care and um, uh, and treatment for substance use into the uh, the mainstream.
3: I love that. I love that you asked. That was the perfect question because I wanted to tell you a story <laughs> I'm to tell you the story that I think will answer all of that, Dave. Oh, um, Go ahead. So we set in just like Tecla described, we set up systematic screening. Um, and what we do is when people who have really high risk drinking, the top 2%, we actually ask them questions that are, are helpful for diagnosing alcohol use disorders. There's 11 criteria and we ask them 11 questions and they, they complete all that. The medical assistant has them complete all that before the provider ever en- enters the room in primary care. And so this I'm going to tell you about a patient who was being seen weekly for wound care, chronic wound care. And it, it turns out alcohol affects wound healing. It affects infection. It affects bleeding from wounds. Um, and so the the provider was, was um, a little resistant to screening um, the, the nurse and asked the doctor and the doctor said, I guess you have to, and they, they really were not behind this new program of screening. And, and then they did, um, Screen and the patient was screening at an unhealthy level and at a very unhealthy level and and the nurse asked the doctor, "Do I have to give them the, the checklist?" And the pro- doctor said, "I guess you do." And um, this was you know, th- this was the first week they were implementing. This doesn't happen anymore. And and the the patient checked multiple symptoms that they were having of alcohol use disorder, and the provider was very surprised. The provider knew this patient well um, and went into. The, into the room and said, tell me about this. You're having, you know, you you checked a lot of um, concern about your drinking, inability to cut down, people worried about your drinking. Um, And the patient said, you know, yeah, I've known it's a problem and I haven't known who to talk to. This question makes, this story makes me tear up sometimes because the patient had been coming in all the time and nobody actually opened, made it comfortable. He said, I was ashamed. I didn't know I didn't know who to talk to about it. He wanted treatment. He started medications that day. The provider felt like it was a win-win-win. This is going to help his healing um, of his chronic wound and, and so it was it was simple. There was a system in place though, it wasn't all on the provider. There was a system where the screen got done with high risk patients, the, the assessment got done and then they were able to jump right to starting that patient on medication treatment and, and getting him counseling as well. So so I think that kind of sums up the sort of system you need but, but the shame on the patients um, and then the stereotypes that people bring because of the stigma about um, you know whether the patient in front of them should be somebody they should be concerned about alcohol or not.
0: The road ahead, let's be metaphorical, there is actually a roadmap for the road ahead. Uh, and we're gonna start by asking Laura about something called, and this is from the NIAAA that's being developed, something called the the Alcohol Healthcare Roadmap. And then I'm gonna throw it over to, to Tekla to talk a little more about it. But first, could you give us a, a high level look? Or there, are there uh, three key steps in the roadmap?
2: There are. Uh, and I will say that this roadmap is um, based on our healthcare professionals core resource on alcohol. This is a um, foundational resource for healthcare professionals of all disciplines that includes 14 foundational topics um, on information that um, you know we think every healthcare provider needs to know to care um, for people who drink alcohol. Um, and so our... Alcohol uh, Healthcare Roadmap has a very simple workflow that health providers and health plans can adapt. It has three steps, as you said. Um, The first step is to screen for heavy drinking. And we have two brief validated alcohol screening tools. Tecla mentioned them earlier. One is the audit C, it's just three questions. And the other is even shorter, it's one question. So we have these two brief measures, that's the first step. And then you go on to step two. So if there's no heavy drinking, You advise people to stay within the U.S. dietary guidelines if they're going to choose to drink alcohol or to abstain entirely, and then you're done. Um, If, on the other hand, that screen comes up positive, so you see, you know, this is someone who is drinking heavily, um, then you want to assess them more thoroughly for alcohol use disorder. And for that, we have another uh, quick form that patients can fill out, the Alcohol Symptom Checklist. It uh, goes through all 11 uh, symptoms of alcohol use disorder in plain language that's easy for patients to understand um, and that can serve as a, a um, grounding or a basis for healthcare professionals to have that conversation. Um, so once you've done that deeper assessment, you move on to your brief, brief intervention. So if the patient you're speaking with does not have alcohol use disorder, so that means they've endorsed either zero symptoms or one symptom. Then you would do what we would call advise and assist. We would just give a brief intervention for heavy drinking. So we might ask permission to talk about their alcohol use. We might give them some feedback and advice and let them know, you know, um, where they stand. Uh, We would want to express concern about alcohol use with the patient and let them know, you know, that alcohol consumption affects, again, over 200 health conditions. It affects every system in the body, right? we might want to negotiate individualized drinking goals and then of course check in with the patient, see what they think of all of this. So that's our brief intervention again, if someone has zero or one symptoms of alcohol use disorder. If they have two or more symptoms of alcohol use disorder, um then they could be diagnosed with with AUD, um, you know, which runs a spectrum from mild to moderate to severe. So again, the the basic structure of how you would proceed is similar. Um, but you would want to beef it up. You would want to have um, more information in there. Uh, you might want to be a little stronger in your advice to quit or cut back, to be very clear with people about what the risks of drinking alcohol at this level are. Um, and you can often, healthcare professionals can really use uh, the symptoms that people have endorsed to really ground that conversation, right? So you said that a couple of times you've tried to cut back on your alcohol use and you just can't. Tell me more about that. Right. So that way you have a better sense of what that looks like. And this is a chance to discuss treatment options with people. There are so many evidence based treatment options for alcohol use disorder beyond Alcoholics Anonymous and beyond what people commonly think of as rehab. Right. There are FDA approved medications for treating alcohol use disorder. There is specialty behavioral health care, individual counseling that people can provide that can be done virtually. Um, There are digital interventions and there are mutual support groups beyond Alcoholics Anonymous. So there's a lot available for healthcare providers to recommend to their patients. I
0: I, I want to ask Tecla when it comes to health plans, um, uh where NCQA's measures um where they can add into to the data set that helps to inform uh, patients, helps to inform clinicians along the way. Tell me about Uh, NCQA's HEDIS measures that are related to uh, what we're talking about, to alcohol use and how they can be incorporated into treatment plans.
1: Yes. Well, I'm so glad we're here at the NCQA conference because there's an NCQA HEDIS measure on alcohol called the Alcohol Screening and Follow-Up Measure. It's called ASF. I'm so lucky to have Dr. Bradley on the phone on the podcast with us today because some of her work informed that measure as it was being created. And we hope I'm looking at you, Dave, to let if it's going to be publicly reported in 2024, there's potential financial incentives to health plans um, if they adopt that measure. And I just want to go back to reiterate all of the things that Laura just clearly articulated in her three step plan on the core resource on alcohol That is all available for free for health plans. So literally, it's just a plug and play, right? You know, it's the right thing to do. You know, it's impacting your patients. You know, you're operating with blindfolds on if you don't ask about alcohol. So here it is. We created it for you. It's evidence-based. All the tools, the 11 questions, the AUD checklist that Dr. Bradley mentioned in her beautiful case story. That's all
0: there. Kathy, let me move on to you. Um, Tell us about how Kaiser has been doing with with all of this. What what have you learned so far, and you were already giving us an anecdote before. What are some success stories uh, from from Kaiser?
3: You know, I think the success is that we implemented, um, we use the electronic health record, um, so that all anything that doesn't need to be done by human is done by the electronic health record. In terms of when somebody's due for screening annually, and now it's sent through the portal. We um, worked with teams, frontline teams, to find out. Who could do it and, and, and to make it seamless in their practice, because every practice is different. And so they would develop a workflow. Sometimes the front desk would send, you know, hand out the form. Sometimes the medical assistant would hand out the form. The patient would do it. The medical assistant would always enter it into the record before the provider saw the patient. Um, and the same with the checklist if the, if the patient has, um, high risk drinking. Um, and, what we learned and then we supported them and when i say support and this was true in in the organization northern california kaiser where tecla used to be where um providers need training and so one of our providers his his word was prickly conversations these these things he hadn't been trained to do and and so we had practice facilitators work with each clinic and help each member of the practice get comfortable and that investment up front um, with quality improvement meetings. And we we monitored just like it, as if it was the HEDIS measure. We monitored the weekly and gave them feedback on how they were doing and and their rates of screening and, and follow-up. Um, and what we learned is if we invested upfront in implementing, it's still, we stopped all that activity in 2018. And five years later, it's still happening. And the providers valued it so much when the pandemic hit that it, all of it got to put in through the portal, where now patients are being screened through the portal. And the other thing I'll say we've learned is we implemented alcohol screening with depression screening and suicide screening and cannabis and drug screening. And our providers, I don't think honestly, I'll be honest, this is my opinion, I don't think it would have persisted for five years if it was just one behavior. So I think we have to integrate alcohol into other care that's happening in primary care um, and and the systems that are being used for depression, suicide. Um, so I think that was the other piece of our success that really made it sustainable. But, but um, providers valued it so much, it was their highest priority to in- integrate into the portal when the pandemic hit was to keep the behavioral health screening going. Um, and I, so that to me speaks a lot.
1: Can I add to Kathy and say that alcohol as a vital sign, the reason it was successful is because, as Kathy said, it was right alongside blood pressure screening, yep. weight, exercise is a vital sign, tobacco, you asking all of those questions together. And we ask everyone, not just this person or that person, because Everyone needs to be asked. And we're studying that now. We're studying the impacts of asking everyone on the sustainability of alcohol screening and follow-up. So it's vitally important um, in the sustainability of this work that it occurs alongside the other health screening. And it sends the message to patients that this matters to your health, just like tobacco does.
0: So Laura, what, what do you say, this interview that we've just done, what is it about? And what do you want, listeners to take away? Who do you think we're mostly addressing? But in general, what what do you want the takeaway to be from this interview?
2: I want the takeaway to be that alcohol consumption is an important part of health, and it is something that we can and should talk about. We can do this. Healthcare professionals can do this. Our patients can do this. And healthcare systems can support their clinicians in asking these questions. And it's something that we need to do for their health, for the health of our nation, um, and for those healthcare organizations who are listening. This benefits their bottom line because it helps reduce, um, you know, other problems that are associated with alcohol, which we've learned through this interview are many. Um, and you know, one really quick, easy thing that people can do uh, is to visit NIAA's Healthcare Professionals Core Resource on Alcohol. It was written for busy clinicians in mind. It has free continuing medical education and CE credits for physicians, physician assistants, nurses, clinical psychologists, and pharmacists. Again, it's free. It's high quality. So take a look, go there. This will help individual healthcare practitioners and it will also help healthcare systems implementing efficient evidence-based practices for improving alcohol
0: health care. So, Kathy, we have the tools. What What are like, if somebody asks you, what are some practical tools that clinicians can use to start moving forward on uh, on addressing behavioral health issues, on addressing substance use issues, where what do you what would you say are the top two or three tools that come to mind that they could use as far as free resources?
3: We have a saying in, in primary care quality improvement that you can't improve what you can't measure. So I think that's actually where the HEDIS measure comes in, is that if you don't know what proportion of your patients are being screened and what proportions are um, getting a brief intervention, you can't improve it. And so you you need to start measuring. So the, the other tool is performance measurement. Um, and for that, we need EHRs to participate and start supporting this work as part of their core EHR resource. Um, And then we need it to be a priority for health systems to actually see this as a medical condition that is very common or that alcohol use affects all the health conditions and then alcohol use disorders um, affects over 10% of the population um, and, and is treatable. So that's something that we need to really focus the light on and manage appropriately.
0: Techno, where is all of this going to be five years from now? I'm giving you five, not 10 years. Oh, five years? Not 10 years is, we don't want to wait 10 years, but um, it's not six months. But five years from now, as far as the, the mainstreaming of the issues that we've talked about today, uh, where do you think things are going to be?
1: I have butterflies. It's like a magic wand. Um, five years from now, everyone sitting around a dinner table will know the U.S., dietary guideline recommendations uh, for drinking. Five years from now, people can talk about and define what's a heavy episode of drinking. Primary care providers will feel not only comfortable, but confident in linking heavy episodic drinking to other health conditions that are presenting in their office. Medical assistants will feel empowered to screen alongside the other important vital screening questions they are asking. We'll start to see less heavy episodic drinking because our culture starts to acknowledge that actually less is better and it's not good for us to keep drinking above uh, such heavy levels. What else do I want to see? I would like to see that people feel empowered in having this discussion in primary care because they know it's important to their health. And why do they know it? Because health plans prioritize it doctors prioritize it systems prioritize it and you know what our marketing and brands prioritize it as well so five years that's a lot to do but we know we can do it because we have the core resource on alcohol and it'll get us there and we've got ncqa in their nicetus measure which will help back it up
0: Thanks again to addiction experts Dr. Katherine Bradley, Dr. Tekla Brumder-Ross, as well as Dr. Laura Kwako, Chief of the Treatment Health Services and Recovery Branch in the Division of Treatment and Recovery at NIH's National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Links to the roadmap they mentioned, implementation guides, and related HEDIS measures all can be found in this episode's description. Now announcing NCQA's next big event, the Health Equity Forum, coming up March 4th and 5th, 2024, at the Westin Los Angeles Airport. The Health Equity Forum convenes state officials, advocates, and healthcare providers, showcasing the blueprint for creating and implementing statewide health equity strategies. It's two days, day one, California state officials and health equity leaders discuss why California has prioritized health equity. And they'll also share best practices for health equity collaboration, like the collaboration they've implemented with NCQA. Day two features a workshop and training with NCQA experts about our health equity accreditation programs. You'll determine your readiness to earn accreditation, identify challenges you might have along the way, and learn how to address them. So, if you're a champion of health equity, diversity, and inclusion, NCQA wants to partner with you. We offer all kinds of opportunities that can be customized to align with your strategic objectives and specific health equity goals. Find out more at ncqa.org and search Health Equity Forum, or you can just click the link in this episode's description. It seems that Taylor Justice can do just about anything he sets his mind to. With a military background and an MBA from Columbia, he helped build a large and very unique healthcare entity that operates on a national level, cascading into states, but remains local and community-focused. Taylor Justice served in the U.S. Army before working as a sales engineer for a tech company that creates gear, analytics, and software for fiber-optic manufacturers and telecoms. But after that, he co-founded a consulting firm focused on improving human and operational efficiency for organizations. And I'll note that this was a service-disabled, veteran-owned company. And from there... Taylor focused full time on Unite Us, the company he co founded in 2012. Last I checked, Unite Us now lives and operates across 44 states. Collaboration technology, as Taylor calls it, is basically his company's DNA. Unite Us provides end to end solutions that establish a new standard of care that identifies and predicts social care needs in communities helps enroll people in services, and leverages meaningful outcomes data to drive community investment. us creates accountable, coordinated care networks, interconnecting providers of social services to reduce the cost of care overall by integrating all social determinants of health. It's a big idea. It's a big company that focuses on individuals and a state-level company working to get communities what they need to provide health services efficiently and effectively. Sounds great, but how does Unite Us do what they do? How did they get here? What can traditional health systems learn from Taylor Justice? And how did he go from a military career to the healthcare arena?
4: My journey uh, as it pertains to Unite Us really started, uh, I was unfortunately medically discharged from service. So I was a U.S. army infantry officer. Um, and I thought I was going to be in the service for a minimum of eight years. And before I reached my two year mark, um, I was, um, honorably discharged, um, for medical reasons. And so that process of dealing with the VA, finding a new job, finding a place to live, just notice the inefficiencies, um, of connecting to these different, um, uh, services, if you will. Um, and I thought I was a smart guy. I had a strong network that I could fall back on. Um, and so I didn't necessarily uh, uh, struggle, but it was still very like cumbersome and frustrating. And I always, and, and the thing that helped me out was like I had this West Point network uh, that was able to kind of connect me to different employment opportunities and, uh, and, and um, set me down a particular path. I was always worried about those folks that maybe didn't have as strong of a network um, but were just as capable, um, far more intelligent and had done more significant things in the military. They were still going to run into this frustrating, uh, transition from active duty service into the the quote unquote civilian sector. Um, and so I always knew that, you know, there was a, a an opportunity there to make that more efficient, but that was like galvanized by this fire. I had in my belly, um, uh, which was like, I had this guilt that I didn't get to serve the way I wanted to. And I didn't have to go do the same things that all of my brothers and sisters in the military did when they deployed to Afghanistan or uh, Iraq or, you know, anywhere else across the globe. And so I used that, that, that guilt, if you will, as like channeling, okay, I'm going to be this force recon for them when they get out into the civilian sector, I'm going to go figure these things out. Um, and so I was able to get stable. I, I took that first job. I wasn't necessarily uh, finding a sense of purpose. And um, it was cool. I learned a lot, uh, a lot of like, like hard skills, like how to sell and account management, and um, and the technical aspect of of, of um, the technology industry. But I was w- trying to figure out like what can I do to kind of have that same sense of purpose that I had when I was in the military? So I got involved with a veteran nonprofit organization just as a volunteer that was focused on physical fitness and social activities. Um, And uh, as this chapter grew in Philadelphia, uh, I saw people come in with needs outside of what the organization could facilitate. People had food needs, housing needs, somewhere in the justice system. Um, And I was just trying to connect them to different services. And I had this big Excel sheet Uh, And most of those folks that were in, I would say, more of a a dire situation or a crisis situation had more than one need that needed to be addressed at a given time. Um, And it was an administrative nightmare. But for those families, so frustrating because they just needed to get to the right person that could help them. But there were so many organizations that offered so many different services, but very strict eligibility requirements. And so they would have to tell their story over and over and over again and get told no and get told no. And, you know, when you're already feeling um, uh, uh, that you're in a bad situation, you could feel desperate or,
0: you know, things aren't working out for you to then put yourself into that position exacerbates that. You know, there's a lot of ways of looking at social determinants of health. I don't mean examining them. I mean, the concept of it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, around here, around where I work, we look at them and we use them as data points and as the you know uh, numbers that are the basis of saying, and, proving, and demonstrating that there are gaps in healthcare in society. Yeah. Uh, but when you're in the middle of it, you're looking around. That's as far as I can tell. That's what we're talking about as SDOH, even if it wasn't specifically healthcare. That's what you were experiencing. And then once you were able to get into your own better situation, you're still looking around and seeing SDOH is everywhere. I'm seeing the same groups of people sometimes that are falling through the cracks. And what can I do? So what did you do to, uh, with unite us, what have you done to find a way of, uh, resolving the cracks, lifting people up, uh, bringing these services together. When social determinants of health started becoming a buzz term in
4: 2018, Someone had to explain it to Dan and, and myself, what it meant, because no one in the community called it social determinants of health, is called it their work. And so once somebody explained what SDOH was to us, we're like, oh, we've been doing that for five years. Um, and so obviously healthcare comes in and puts a a, f- a fancy word on it, and like now there's like a, a, a focus. Um and so we we actually saw with that it was actually healthcare organizations uh, that came to us and said, "Hey, what you're doing for the veteran and military population is really cool. Could you do this for this other population?" And so we started to to kind of peel back the onion, and it, you know the, the challenges that that veteran and military community faced were not unique. Uh, they just happened to be this perfect petri dish of American society when you look at age, race, socioeconomic status. And so what we needed to do was just kind of. Uh, open up our software to be service provider population agnostic. And as long as there were multiple entities that needed to coordinate care, um, we had a solution that we could provide to them. And so what we've then done, and and when we started off in the veteran and military space, we had one product for one market. Uh, And it was this, think of care coordination uh, in a clinical sense, extended out to all of those other community providers. So now you have that same type of network but now everybody else in the community that provides um, all of these different services could be a big food bank, like a, like a feeding America or could be a local church that has a food bank for one hour a week. Uh, that's a different resource that people can take advantage of, but we wanted to curate all of those. So When we say community wide care coordination, we truly mean community wide uh, anybody that's providing some type of service. We want to have onto the platform because that's a resource that somebody can take advantage of. So then what we've done for the past decade is literally ground and pound uh, across the country of building these networks. Because what we were fighting against initially back in 2018 were these AHC grants that came out of like, oh, I need to screen for social determinants of health um, uh, with an emphasis on the screen, less emphasis on did you actually connect that person to a service? Did they actually receive that service. And so healthcare at that moment wanted a checkbox and maybe not a checkbox, maybe that's like a a, a bad term, but they wanted a resource directory to be able to say, Hey, here's where I sent this person to go receive assistance. The only time they ever got feedback is if that person came back into the hospital, which, which was counterintuitive. And they told them, yeah, I got care at the food bank, or I was able to find housing or whatnot. And so what we then did is like, we wanted to be the best last mile provider. The 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 most beautiful thing about the veteran and military population is they don't let you blow smoke. We're an accountable organization that you know doesn't sugarcoat things. So the first product we built back in 2013 was a resource directory. Put it on a pretty map. Started sending veterans to all these different services, and veterans are like, "Hey, um, this sucks because that organization doesn't know that I'm coming. Um, they might not even respond, or I might not even be eligible for it." So we flipped our model. To then focus on, we're going to go last mile. I'm going to talk to every single one of those community-based organizations that will raise their hand and say, yes, if you send me a referral, I'll respond to it. Um, uh, I'll keep my own information up to date so that we don't have to spend human capital resources on uh, updating a, a resource directory that once you update it, it's out of date the next day. And then more importantly, give me outcome data on the services that have been rendered.
0: When it talks about talking about resolving and and uh, filling the gaps that we find in in healthcare, um, in terms of last mile, sometimes we say there, there's really a two step process. There's all of these programs and services that have been provided that one way or another people are able to finally determine where are the underserved communities. Mm -hmm. How do we get services there? All the different crazy, all the greatest ideas, you know, we'll have a mobile van for vaccinations and that way we don't have to build a building. We go and then there's a second step. And the other side of it is getting people to take advantage. The health access is not just we have access because the the providers are sitting there, but on the ground people don't have the level of trust that they used to. If they do at all, people have been historically disadvantaged. Um, They just don't have a level of trust and they'll see some healthcare facility, but they won't want to go take advantage of whatever they could be taking. advantage. And the solution seems to be having boots on the ground of people who live in that community and understand that community. So uh, tell me from that, with, with that kind of phrasing, tell me your perspective for that.
4: I couldn't agree more. I mean, the analogy coming my first job out of the military from a telecommunications uh, side of the house, like last mile was it. And we always use that as like our example. If I go into a state, like to explain our business model is I go into the state. If I'm Verizon Wireless, as an example, I have to connect to that hospital. or I have to connect to that business. I have to connect to that local home for people to receive the services. Uh, but I, so I have to build a network and then people can access that network for, you know, internet or telephone or whatever it is. We do something very similar within states of building this network, but, you know, we have to then put the boots on the ground to go build those relationships. Um, and so we are a technology company uh, that hires individuals from the communities with which we deploy their job is to build those relationships with community-based organizations, with hosp- with the local hospitals, with the health plans, with state government, and bring them on to the platform so they now have the, the tools to communicate and engage with each other. Um, we then partner with those local service providers that actually provide the tangible service uh, to the end beneficiary. And then we can aggregate that data um, so that we can identify what's working well and what's not. Where are those gaps? Where are people not receiving services? So now when you think of government assistance or you think of philanthropic investment or you think of community benefit from a provider standpoint, we can now have very targeted investments in the community uh, to address the gaps that exist there because every county, every community is a little bit different. Um, They all have similar trends but uh, the, you know the the ebb and flow of the supply could change, and so you want to be able to kind of pinpoint in real time what's going on. The infrastructure gives you the
0: ability to look at that data and then pinpoint where some of those gaps are. So tell me, who are human service providers? That's a phrase that that you've used that you use for the company. So give me a definition. Who's included in human service providers? Are we talking about? Uh, CHWs as well, uh, community health workers, volunteers, non-volunteers, laymen, uh, who, who would be in there? Anybody and everybody that falls under those categories.
4: Um, because to your point in in the beginning, before we started recording, it is very broad, right? It's a, it's a very large, um, offering of, of services that help someone be, or help an individual or a family be healthy. So that could be your local church. Um, that could be uh, volunteers at that local church that they have a food pantry for one hour a month. That could be a, a well-established food bank in your community that's participating. That could be a barbershop um, that is a conduit to connect people to services in the community. Because going back to your, your point, a lot of folks don't trust the healthcare system. Um, and so you want to identify those organizations where people congregate where people have trust, where they've broken down walls, they are willing to ask for help. And while a barbershop isn't necessarily providing a direct human or social service um, in the in the traditional sense. They do have people that walk in and say, hey, I might need assistance with a new job or I might need assistance with with food because of X, Y or Z. Um, And that that barbershop can be a conduit, connect them into the network where they can have access to these services. And it's one of those areas that I think healthcare is really starting to identify. It is a competitive advantage, because if those members or those patients don't necessarily. Uh, trust the healthcare system per se, they do trust these community providers. Those organizations usually are, have the ability to spend more time with that individual than a primary care doc. Um, and ultimately, depending on what healthcare entity you are, you know, you don't want people taking uh, uh, an ambulance ride to the emergency room um, if it's a social need rather than a clinical need. Um, and so what we're trying to do is create Uh, uh, avenues to people. So people can connect to these different services rather than, Oh, I'm hungry or I don't have a place to sleep. I'm going to go to the hospital because I know it's open 24 seven. And you uh, uh, have the ability to, to bring on these organizations to participate within the network that for them reduces their operational efficiency uh, or improves their operational efficiency, excuse me, by 85%. Because right now it's all manual. Those organizations are still doing wall full of brochures or sticky notes um, outside of whatever their core offering is. So you're you're digitizing this legacy manual process uh, so that people can easily connect and access services quicker.
0: The company has been around over 10 years now. What is the most surprising thing that you've learned since starting unite us over time. Um, or has, has anything happened that's changed your mind about things from when you started, Changed your personal outlook on life, anything that comes to mind?
4: Um, well, the first thing is that this, that this didn't already exist. You know, you feel like you have like this, um, view of some of these government systems that you think they are connected. So when people are, you know, applying for Medicaid or they're applying for SNAP or they're applying for WIC services that is streamlined on the back end, I can I can see, okay, Taylor Justice or his family is taking advantage of, you know, all of these different systems. Uh, and that doesn't exist at all. I think the pandemic uh, highlighted the, the lack of available public health infrastructure um, and the lack of investment where, uh, you know, a lot of states were kind of caught in the the second and third order effects of the clinical response to the pandemic is connecting people to food sources uh, or helping with rental mortgage assistance at scale. And, you know, that was a pretty eye opening for me as you continue to peel back the onion and you get deeper and deeper into uh, into our work of just what is actually missing um, and how a lot of solutions for the human and social service landscape are not technology. They just throw more people at the problem. I was like, Oh, I'm going to just put more people into, um, into these roles so I can handle it. But humans ultimately have like a, a cap of how many people that they can help. Um, I think you have a better appreciation for human and social service organizations, particularly the nonprofits that are out there. You know, I think a lot of people ultimately think of human and social services, um, as either charity or a bad thing with people like feeding off of the government. Um, but you start to, to realize that these organizations are probably some of the most innovative organizations out there out of necessity because they don't have uh, a ton of funding. Uh, they're always asked to do more with less and they're always over capacity And so uh, the funding that they do receive is so restrictive because some big philanthropic organization or state government will come in. It's time bound. Hey, I'll give you this funding for three years. You need to focus on this population, but you can only do X, Y and Z. Um, And so it's very hard for them to continue to innovate and grow. um, uh, And they're always searching for that next funding check so they can continue to support uh, their local community. And so you you start to look at these organizations as, I don't know how they've been able to continue to be sustainable over uh, um, uh, long periods of time because it is so cumbersome. And a lot of the work that they have to do is fundraising and, uh, and, and reporting back to government or philanthropy in a manual way. Uh, and so it was just kind of really eye-opening of how disjointed that whole system was. Um, but on the positive side, I think you're starting to see like this um, this movement within uh, the country around um, uh, the need for social care and including it into
0: healthcare workflows. You're certainly gonna be incentivizing CBOs to to know that they're not going to die out anytime fast and that they can grow and other people who are interested in creating an, another CBO or merging them together to, or finding ways of getting more funding for themselves all these kinds of things uh they might have been discouraged over the last 3 years but um if if you've been that kind the of the last infrastructure, decade plus yeah.
4: the last decade plus in community based organizations this has always been our vision of like reinventing the service delivery model where community-based organizations can be reimbursed for the services that they provide. But I think it's taken a little bit longer because it takes healthcare and government a little bit longer to to kind of move their ships. Um, But also you have to have that infrastructure on the ground in order to then create a performance contract on top of it. How long should it take someone to receive food or housing or transportation when you have the ability to perform across these networks, then you can put a contract on top of that and then you can pay these organizations to do that in a more effective way. So we see it as a revenue stream for these community-based organizations where they have a little bit of margin to work with, where they can continue to innovate uh, and continue to grow their products and services. Um, it's a big shift for the country and we're, we're, we're super excited to be a part of that and help our community-based organizations. Cause at the end of the day, they are the ones that address social determinants of health. They're the ones on the ground that actually provide these services and help people, uh, have food in their belly and a roof over their head. Um, um it's, uh, it's pretty cool to see the kind of the, the, the evolution of, uh, the market and, and really prioritizing these orgs. Uh, the solution in my mind is is pretty simple. It's around collaboration and everybody coming together. And that's really why we're focused on this cross-sector piece. Um, but I think as you start to move those dollars, you're going to start to be big, you know, see big changes uh, in some of these local communities.
0: That's Taylor Justice, co-founder and president of Unite Us. We thank him, of course, for his service and for his work on furthering healthcare in America. Well, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we now ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question for this episode. What's one way a primary care physician can approach a patient who might be suffering from addiction? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you know somebody, maybe it's you who wants to be a guest on our show, just email us and let us know, communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line, and we hope to hear from you soon. Well, that's it for episode 119 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks again for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues and as always we thank you our loyal listener for helping our audience continue to grow on behalf of our award-winning ncqa communications team i'm dave smolar we'll see you again no doubt you've been listening to inside healthcare a podcast brought to you by ncqa the national committee for quality assurance Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.